in what is becoming a very bad habit. I got up here without the remote again. So what happens when I don't preach for six weeks? If somebody could bring that to me, that'd be great. We are going to continue in Ephesians chapter 2. I think it's sitting on top of the sound booth back there somewhere. Somebody see it? Yep, if you can bring me that. In Ephesians chapter 2, the first uh, 10 verses, last week, this week, and next week. And so I want to read those 10 verses to us. And if you need a pen or a book, Scott's passing those out. And then we'll talk about them. Ephesians 2 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I don't know how everybody else feels this time of year. I know there's a lot of exuberance about spring that I don't share with a lot of the population because I'm allergic to Texas in spring. As soon as things start blooming, everybody starts getting excited. I see the first Facebook post of blue bonnets. Dread fills my body because my whole way of living changes in the spring. You can probably hear it in my voice. I've been fighting bad allergies and a sinus infection for the last week. Um, and it was bad enough that I went to the doctor. First time I've been to the doctor for actually being sick in a couple of years, and when he looked in the various ways he can look into my head and saw how bad the sinus infection was, he, and he is Rusty Bachak, laughed at me. Um, And then he sent a nurse in to give me a very painful uh, steroid shot and put me on an antibiotic that I showed Amy this morning, uh, which is, I'm not exaggerating, like that big. Um, for my sinus infection. And this steroid shot is one I've gotten before in the spring. It actually does tend to help me with my allergies, but it makes me miserable for a week before it does that because of the effects of the steroids. And I don't know how these things affect different people different ways. When I was in high school, there was a guy that we knew uh, who we knew was on steroids. Uh, You could tell by looking at him. You could tell by being around him. He was, I mean, if you took sort of the stereotypical meathead out of an 80s movie who used steroids and played football, it was this guy. Um, Even his name, which I won't say because of the way I'm talking about him, uh, and he probably could still pound me into a pulp, um, even his name like fit the whole deal. And uh, and he, he would get roid rage. He would get angry. Uh, and uh, we were pretty sure it was the steroids. I don't get those kinds of things from steroids. I get menopausal, sort of, instead. It's not what, it's kind of a bad trade. I get hot flashes and night sweats, and I can't sleep at night. 
Um, and so a couple of days after, like two or three mornings after I got the shot, I found myself after two consecutive nights of not getting more than three hours of sleep each night, um, I found myself waking up early in the morning, wide awake, frustrated, knowing I had only slept and trying to go back to sleep, knowing I had only slept a few hours, thinking I've got to sleep. And then realizing I'm not sleepy. I don't, maybe I don't need to go. Maybe I should, like a normal human, get up early in the morning and be productive. This is maybe a weird little gift that as long as I can sort of ride this out is kind of like a superpower because that's not how mornings usually go for me. If I wake up and I haven't slept, I need to sleep to be able to function during the day. But uh, this was like this weird sort of injection of a different kind of being for me. Um, if I hadn't felt so miserable from the sinus infection, I probably could have like cured a disease or something with the way that I felt when I woke up after three hours of sleep. Um, but it took a change in mindset for me to go, okay, just get up and go because that's how you feel because I'm usually so dramatically affected by just knowing that I haven't slept enough. In this passage that we're going to look at tonight, particularly in verses four through nine, Paul declares that we have this sort of infusion of new life that transforms our perspective and transforms the kind of power that we have as we live in the world. And it's, it, the, the analogy here is not the new life we get in Jesus is like a steroid shot. It's much more powerful than a steroid shot. But the impact is the comparison that I want to make because I think there's an opportunity for us to realize I'm not just awake and chained to what I'm usually chained to, which in my case was I'm chained to the reality that if I don't sleep more than three hours, I might be able to do two or three hours worth of things and then I'm going to crash. But us here to realize we have this infusion of new life where we're not just chained to our old needs uh, that will catch up to us. We have a new kind of awareness and a new kind of life that frees us to just get up and live with a new kind of supernatural power in the world that Paul describes here. So we're going to focus uh, tonight on verses 4 through 9. I'm going to kind of skip verse 7 because we'll talk about verses 7 and 10. They, they fit together in a particular way uh, next week. But I want to kind of give you the big picture of what I think Paul tells us here, and then we'll take it uh, three little pieces at a time, okay? I think Paul is telling us here in verses 1 through 10 that while you were dead in a life apart from God, he saw you, resurrected you with Jesus, empowered you, and freed you from any need or ability, both of those are important, from any need or ability to impress him, depress him, or alter your standing with him. This is the big picture, I think, of these first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter two. While you were dead in a life apart from God, he saw you, resurrected you with Jesus, empowered you, and freed you from any need or any ability to impress him, to depress him, or to alter your standing with him. So we take it kind of a piece at a time. Starting in verse four, Paul writes, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So the first reality that we see here in this particular passage, verses four through nine, is that God, 
made us alive in Christ. Alive together is the phrase that he uses, and that is because he's not just talking to a bunch of individuals, he's talking to the church, and as we'll see as this progresses, there is a message of salvation, yes, to us as individuals, but that has implications for God's plan, his plan of the gospel, his plan of salvation was always to create a life of the church that's going to fulfill the plans of his kingdom. And so he makes us alive together with Christ. He resurrects us. He raises us from what has been described in verses one through three as a kind of death to what he says here is a new kind of life. The theme in the way that Paul articulates the gospel here, if you start looking at the different ways that different books of the New Testament talk about the gospel or what they focus on in the gospel, uh, we have tended to gravitate toward passages that focus on the forgiveness of sins, which is a true thing that happens when Jesus comes and saves us. But Paul's, Paul's language and his focus here is not so much on the forgiveness of sins as it is on being made alive from the death that our sins brought for us. For the kind of, the way we were living, yes, alive as humans, but sort of walking in the death of our sins. And the language Paul uses here is he comes even while you're in that state and makes you alive. He intervenes into that state and makes you alive. Now, what does he mean when he says we were dead? What is this idea that we get in verse four that God, um, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together? This, this concept, this idea exists in a lot of different places in the scriptures. It's not unique to Ephesians 2. Um, it's not about a destination of death. When, what he's talking about here, there is language in the New Testament, there are implications in the gospel for our ultimate death, the defeat of death, our resurrection from the dead after we die. That's a real thing. It's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about destination death. He's also not talking primarily about physical death. He's not talking to people who have died physically and saying, God has raised you from a physical death. If, if he was uh, talking about that, uh, he'd be talking to an empty room because he's talking to people who still live in Ephesus. Um, and in our case, he's talking to us. But there is a kind of death that the Bible mentions that's different from those things. A few examples of where it shows up. In the first verse of this chapter, as for you, don't you remember how you used to just exist? Corpses, dead in life, so living but dead, buried by your transgressions. It was a world where your sins, your transgressions brought a certain kind of death. In Revelation 3, uh, the word to the church in Sardis is this, I know the things you do. You've claimed a reputation of life, but you are actually dead. This is about the way that they're living, still enslaved to their sins, which creates a sort of spiritual death, even though they're living humans. And in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, the father talks about his son who has returned and said, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and has been found. That son was not physically dead, but he was dead spiritually. He was cut off from the life of the father. And that seems to be the general sense of what Paul is, is talking about and what this concept is in the scriptures when it refers to people, living people who are dead, is that they have been cut off from the life that is really life, from the life of God, from the life of the father. 
the turn in all of this is those people can be awakened. They can be brought back to life. My favorite picture of this in the scriptures is in Ezekiel chapter 37. In just the short version of it, it goes like this. Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And then it's, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. Then he said to me, Ezekiel, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. This is all of my people. They're, they're dead. They are dry bones. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. They're cut off from the life and the hope of God. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you. Josh read a passage as we were singing that last song in which Paul says it's the spirit that brings life. That's not unique to the New Testament. This is what's happening here in Ezekiel as well. It says, I will, he, the Lord says, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. There has been an understanding, if you, if you walk through the scriptures, there has been an understanding all along that this is a reality that people can be spiritually dead and that just as true, just as real is the power and the intention of the Lord through his spirit to bring those people back to life. This is something that God uniquely does for those who are still walking around but have found themselves in a very real way cut off from the life that is really life. And it's often a kind of death if you start kind of looking at the passages that mention this and looking at the story of the scriptures and then really just looking at our lives and our realities. This kind of death that's being described is often a kind of death that we only realize was death when we've been raised from it. And we see the contrast. We see the difference in what life raised up looks like and is like compared to the life that we were living before. This is related to, it's not exactly the same as our ultimate resurrection from physical death. That's a real thing too. Paul's not just, when he talks about death and life, he's not always, and in this case, it's not a metaphor. It's a true, real it's a reality, it's a spiritual reality that affects the physical realm, but he's not talking here about resurrection from physical death, but that doesn't minimize that implication of that, and we'll circle back to that in a few weeks at Easter. So this is related to, but not exactly the same as that kind of resurrection. This is a resurrection that draws us out of living in the realm of sin and death rather than the realm of of light and life. And I just want to be sure that when, when I use that language, when you start hearing the language of sin and death, a lot of us have sort of defaults that we go to, especially if you've grown up in the church. And so you have a list of sins and you think about, am I living in that? Have I been living? Was I ever living in the realm of this list of sins? But Paul has described in the first three verses of this chapter, that realm that we're being raised out of as a realm where we're following the course of the world, where we're falling headlong for the persuasive passions of this world. It's a broad territory. 
It's not just our favorite sins, our favorite immoralities that we like to pick on in the church. It is a broad territory that, that he's telling us God has pulled us out of just going by the defaults that the world feeds us and tells us this is where you find life. And, and so he does that. He rescues us. And that kind of life comes to us like we saw in Ezekiel, like we saw in the passage from Corinthians that, that Josh read. It comes to us when God, by the Spirit, pulls us from one of those realities to the other. It's the Spirit who gives life. So the punchline, kind of the essence of this idea that we've been raised, that we have been given new life from our previous way of living, which was death, is that as people who God has rescued, and, and I would suspect that most of us would identify ourselves as Christians and, and therefore would be part of this group of people that Paul is addressing. As people that God has rescued, you're forgiven from your sins, yes, but you're not just forgiven, you're given new life, really given new life. The kind of life that exists in your spirit has changed. It is the kind of transformation that we sang about. It is us saying, I've changed and I'm changing still. I, I, there is still a, a sort of sanctification going on in me, but, but there's a past tense change that really happened when the spirit came and rescued me. You're given new life. And in a lot of ways, these words set up the rest of the book of Ephesians because the rest of the book of Ephesians is going to be describing what that life looks like. It's not just going to be, here's how you behave now that you've been saved. It's going to be a description of when that new life is rooted in you and God begins to water it and it flourishes through you. Here's what it looks like. That's what we get through a lot of the rest of this book of Ephesians. And I think the correction here for us is it's, it's, I think, very easy for us to see ourselves kind of stuck in the world to not really access or even um, visualize that we have some sort of supernatural change that's happened for us, that we have a supernatural kind of life from, from the Spirit in us. And so we tend to feel like, yeah, God has saved me, uh, but I'm still kind of chained to the realities of the world. I'm still kind of chained to the struggles of my past. But Paul is saying, you're now really awake and you're free to experience and to live out a supernatural new kind of life in your spirit. And that has real implications for your life. It really impacts the way that you live, who you are in the world and what you're able to do. And this is the kind of thing that when you hear this language in our songs, in the scriptures, that we're free from the curse or the power of sin. This is the kind of thing that we're talking about. You have a new life that you are no longer tethered to that. The power of the cross has changed the reality for your spirit. And it, it changes the way you live. And, and that's the next thing that Paul gets into here is this sort of change in who we are and how we function in the world. And he says this in verse six. And God has raised us up with him, Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is a mysterious kind of phrase, maybe, that we have been raised up and seated with Jesus. Um, it's the second reality that I want us to talk about with this passage. We've been raised up and seated with him. 
and and in my sort of bigger statement, the statement that, statement that we've been empowered, I think comes into play here. Um, and, and this is similar to the first in that it's it's not uh, it, he is not saying we've been resurrected from physical death to new life in this sense, but he is saying in a very real sense we've been given new life. Same thing is true here. He's not saying you have in your body been removed to a far off heaven. But he is saying something that's real and not just an exaggeration, not just a metaphor. Clearly, he doesn't mean that this is an immediate removal from earth. Again, he's talking to people who are still here. And the language he's using is not future language. He's not saying you will be raised up. The language here to those living this new life is past tense. God has done this with you. This change has happened for you. He has seated us with him, Paul says. And so to, to kind of get a sense of what this means for us, what God has done and, and, and how it's relevant to us, I think it helps when he says God has raised you up and seated you with Jesus to have a clearer understanding. Well, what has he done with Jesus? Where is Jesus sitting and why does that matter? We saw when Scott taught us through the first chapter of Ephesians, starting in verse 9, Paul said, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his, this is, one, this is that sentence that's like a thousand words long, so we're picking up in the middle. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, and now watch this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him. So we were raised and seated next to him. This is what happened with Jesus. Raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. It is present tense reality. It is also future tense, but not just future tense. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There is a new relationship, Paul says, between Jesus. When Jesus is resurrected and set at the right hand of the Father, there is a new relationship between God exercising his power in Jesus and the kind of principalities, the kind of powers of the world that we talked about last week. The, the, the world where Paul says the prince of the power of the air operates this world and, and he has all of these ways of, of exercising power. Paul says Jesus has been given a seat of authority over all of that. And that relationship is clear that... that um, he, under his feet are all of those powers, okay? So then here in these verses that we're looking at tonight, he says, we are raised up. And the, and the verb that he uses when he says that we've been raised up and seated next to Christ is a verb that has connotations of like royal ascension. We have been enthroned is, is a way of translating that verb. We have been given a level of authority and seated next to Jesus. In other words, this is not just about us uh, going somewhere eventually. It is about us becoming something. It is a change in our identity and our authority. So, so what is it that we've become? Well, we've become, clearly from the way that Paul words this, we've become those 
who are, who are seated next to Christ as he reigns over the powers of this world. So we are in that, in that space. We are with him in the heavenly places. Not a physical, this is not a physical relocation, but it is a real spiritual presence in a sphere where Jesus occupies and from which he rules over the powers and in which his death and his resurrection empower us in a new way relative to sin and to those powers and to, as Paul said, the prince of the power of the air and to the coarse and the persuasive passions of this world. We have been changed, not moved physically to heaven, but in our spirits, we have been set next to Jesus who is ruling over all of those powers. We are we are no longer subject to those powers. And, and Paul's clear that we have an active role here. This is not just we're sitting next to Jesus and so when the powers come, we go, look who's sitting next to me. And, and Jesus is sort of sheltering us. Certainly it's all rooted in him and his power. But in Ephesians 3, which we'll get to several weeks down the line, he says, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And then he says, this is why God has done what he's done. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, the wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus and our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This resurrection, this raising us from the death of our sins to new life, and this putting us, setting us next to Jesus is not just a restoration to some previous life. This is a whole new life and reality, and it changes the way that we live and, the, and our relationship with the world around us and our relationship with spiritual powers around us. And so last week when I said, as we look at the life that we came from, as we look at the power that still exists in the world to pull people into the ways in the world, we should be humble and grateful that we're no longer subject to that. And, and that call, that call to be humble and grateful is important here because Paul says we're being given from that place, we're being given this seat instead of that previous reality in which we had no power to hold off those powers and principalities. We have been moved to a place where we have actual spiritual authority over those powers through Jesus. And so the second thing that I encouraged us last week is that we should stay awake because that reality that we've come from still exists. There's still a gravity pulling us back in that direction. And I wanna say that that call to stay awake is not meant to make you paranoid that any day there, I'm gonna be pulled back into that life or that there's a demon around every corner waiting to get me. It's meant to alert us to the reality that we have now this power sitting next to Jesus and it's completely unnecessary to give it away. We've been given new life. We've been seated next to Jesus. And the only way that we find ourselves subject again 
or, or believing that we're subject again to that old way is that we trade it, is that we give away what we've been given. Because the enemy, like we talked about last week, will try to convince you one small trade at a time to exchange this reality that we've been given in Jesus for what the world has to offer. That's what the enemy wants, and it's his only play. His only access is for us to voluntarily forget our new reality, to trade this, because we have been made something new. We have been changed. We have been given new life and a new position and a new authority. And so when we sing songs and Josh tells you, sing this to your heart, sing a little louder. This is is what we're doing. This is what we're talking about. We're reminding ourselves who God is, what he's done for us so that we live in that reality. And, And we never get hoodwinked into trading it for another reality. We remind ourselves that we're seated next to Jesus. He is fighting for us. And we don't have to settle for anything less. I know that talking about the devil and talking about uh, evil and all those things like we did last week stirs up a lot of questions. I heard some of them this week. And I just, in general, I want to say, again, the, the, the wrong answer to that awareness is to get paranoid, to start sort of looking for demons around every corner. The right answer is to be awake and to say, we're going to refuse to trade this new reality of God's kingdom for the lesser promises of the kingdoms of the world and just to know that that trade will be offered to you again and again. But I am going to refuse to take that trade. Okay, last thing. Paul says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, that's why he, that's, that's the reason and the way that he did all of these things that we've read in verses four, five, through, five and six. And then in verses eight and nine, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Just quickly, this is the last point I want us to see in this particular passage, that, that, that what God has done here is completely his gift. It is a free gift to us. In Ephesians 1, um, we saw that from the beginning, this was God's plan to rescue us. Verses 4 through 6 say God chose us to be in a relationship with him even before he laid out plans for this world. He destined us to be adopted as his children through the covenant Jesus the anointed inaugurated in his sacrificial life. This was his pleasure and his will for us. Ultimately, God is the one worthy of praise for showing us his grace. He is merciful and marvelous, freely giving us these gifts in his beloved. What is happening with us and God in in giving us new life and setting us next to Jesus is God's plan and God's work. And it's been his plan from the very beginning. And that plan is not just about us individually, like I said before, in our new life. All of the good kingdom work that will come from me being saved, from any one of you being saved, from all of us 
being saved, all of that good kingdom work that comes out of our salvation is part of a bigger story, not just our individual stories. Immediately after telling us that God chose us from the beginning to be in a relationship with us, he planned all along to save us. Paul says, he has enlightened us to the great mystery at the center of his will. With immense pleasure, he laid out his intentions through Jesus. So the plan of salvation, the gospel, through Jesus all along has been a plan that will climax when the time is right as he returns to create order and unity both in heaven and on earth when all things are brought together under the anointed's royal rule. That's the big picture and your salvation is a part of it. It is a gift to you that you have been saved as part of God's plan to bring order and unity to his whole creation. The specific point here is that our works, the good things that we do, our behavior, whether that's really sort of impressively righteous behavior, proactive, spiritual good stuff that we do, or whether it's just in that sort of category of sheer moral obedience, rule-keeping. Like if if you are someone who thrives on knowing I've done all the things I'm supposed to do, I haven't stepped out of bounds, or you're someone who thrives on doing the extraordinary thing, Whichever, wherever you fit in this spectrum, those works do not and they cannot alter your standing before God. They do not and they cannot make you alive spiritually. They do not and they cannot raise you into the realm where Jesus is enacting his kingdom in this world and you're a part of his work. The things you do, do not and cannot accomplish those things. They do have a place. They do matter. And that's what we'll talk about next week. We'll talk about the fact that that those good works are the natural consequence of that new life that we've been given. And that they are, the purpose of them is for enacting this plan that God is enfolding and for pointing back to the king. But the saving and the new life is all God's doing not ours. And that means two very, very simple things. And Paul's explicit. One thing that it means, somebody help me out there, is that there's nothing for you to boast about. It doesn't matter how well you keep the rules in terms of being able to boast. It doesn't matter what extraordinary things you do. And most of us are not people who would go around actually boasting. This is usually more about what's in our spirit, what's in our motivation. But the truth is that the sort of Christian world we live in is full of a mindset and a spirit and even an industry of spiritual pride and accomplishment where we all feel the need to keep up and to somehow compare ourselves to other people and where there is a looking down on people that happens. And and I just want to say, and I think Paul is clear here, that all of that is not from Jesus. None of that is from Jesus. The second thing that is true is that there's nothing for you to fear. Your faith in Jesus means that you've been made alive by God, that he did that, not you, and you are not in a cycle of trying to make yourself alive before God. You are not in a cycle of trying to be right with God based on what you do and what you don't do. In place of that, that sort of 
sense that you have to earn it in place of the fear that God might direct his wrath at you if you don't earn it, we have the cross, which is God's love given to us by no doing of our own. There's nothing for us to boast about and there's nothing for us to fear as it relates to our relationship with God. This is the gospel. This is the good news. While you were dead in a life apart from God, he saw you, resurrected you with Jesus, empowered you, and freed you from any need or ability to impress him, to depress him, or to alter your standing with him. Let's pray. Father, may we be people who hear your good news. And more than anything tonight, my prayer is that we would have ears to hear the declaration that you have seen us where we are, that you have come to us, that you have found us, and that you have done these things that your scriptures tell us you've done. You have given us, really given us new life in our spirits. You've raised us from that place where we are stuck to not just the sins of our past, but the way of the world that offers a semblance of life, but not lasting deep life. And that you have, in giving us that new life, you've raised us into your space. You have brought us next to Jesus, where you are bringing that kingdom, which was a mystery hidden and is now being revealed on the earth. You have brought us into the space where you're bringing it into being. And you've done all that because you love us. You've done all that through the gift of Jesus who has saved us from those things and given us that new life. And so we respond by giving our lives wholly to you and by honoring the gift of Jesus, his cross and his resurrection. Come and take communion and remember that gift in Jesus.